Good evening. The last Medal of Honor winner from World War II is memorialized at the United States Capitol, a deal in the works for Ukraine's grain exports, Biden and Israel, the hypocrisy of war, and the NYPD and cannabis. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, July 14th, 2022. The nation honored a hero today as West Virginia native Herschel Woody Williams, who died at 98 and was the last surviving Medal of Honor recipient from World War II, lay in honor at the Capitol. Williams' body arrived at the Capitol about uh, 10.30 a.m., and tributes poured in to remember a man who meant so much to so many. Members of the military carried his casket up the steps to the rotunda, where he lay in honor. House Speaker Representative Nancy Pelosi delivered a eulogy. Thank you for allowing our nation to join you in mourning this patriotic American here in this temple of American democracy. As the forces of tyranny threatened liberty around the world, Woody proudly enlisted in the Marines, eager to serve his country. Five, six, he was never the tallest Marine at 135 pounds, never the biggest, yet he was a force of nature on the battlefield. At Iwo Jima, Woody marched through a hailstorm of gunfire, single-handedly destroying seven enemy positions. In awarding Woody the Medal of Honor, President Truman called his unyielding determination and extraordinary heroism. Even after the stunning feat of bravery, his service is far from over. He devoted the rest of his life to helping veterans and Gold Star families and all families, always driven by his motto, the cause is greater than I am. Ladies and gentlemen, the president's own United States Marine Band vocal and string ensemble. a U.S. Marine Corps Reserve veteran, received the honor for his heroic acts in the Battle of Iwo Jima. He was also awarded the Purple Heart after being wounded in the battle. Williams became the first inductee into the West Virginia Military Hall of Fame and followed his time in the military with a lifetime of public service, setting up organizations to support Gold Star families, families that have lost loved ones in war. In West Virginia, he's a state hero. And United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres announced at United Nations headquarters in New York yesterday substantial progress after negotiations on the export of Ukrainian grain, calling it a critical step forward. Today in Istanbul, we have seen a critical step, a step forward to ensuring the safe and secure export of Ukrainian food products through the Black Sea. In a world darkened by global crisis, today at last we have a ray of hope. A ray of hope to ease human suffering and alleviate hunger around the world. A ray of hope to support developing countries and the most vulnerable people. A ray of hope to bring a measure of much-needed stability to the global food system. We are hoping that uh, we'll be able uh, to reconvene uh, very soon, uh, I'm sure uh, uh, next week, and hopefully we'll be able to have a final agreement. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Guterres shared hope 
That grain export will reconvene very soon, adding he's sure that next week we'll be able to have a final agreement. Meanwhile, the war grinds on, even if Ukraine's weapons suppliers in the European Union say they're not really part of the war, despite promises of billions of euros in war machines matching even bigger instruments of death from the United States. NATO General Secretary Jen Stoltenberg tried to balance the two positions, peacemaker versus warmaker. First, we agreed to step up support for Ukraine. As you know, NATO allies provide unprecedented level of military support to Ukraine. Actually, NATO allies and NATO have been there since 2014, trained, equipped, and supported the Ukrainian armed forces. But of course, since the invasion in February, allies have stepped up significantly, and we also agreed a comprehensive assistance package. No one can predict exactly when this war will end, but what we do know is that the more we are able to provide support to Ukraine, of course, the more we increase the possibility, the likelihood of an end to this war, which happens on acceptable terms for Ukraine, and that's our responsibility to help them uphold the right for self-defense. At the same time, stating that NATO is not part of the war, we support Ukraine, highly valued allied, but NATO would not be directly involved in the fighting on the ground in Ukraine. Jen Stoltenberg, he's the Secretary General of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Representatives of the Russian Defense Ministry are taking part in four-party talks in Istanbul with Turkish, Ukrainian, and United Nations representatives on the issue of organizing the grain exports from Black Sea ports. Russian Defense Ministry Representative Igor Konoshenkov reported that the Russian delegation arrived in Istanbul to participate in talks in creating a potential Black Sea corridor to export the grain from Ukraine. The talks had been announced by the Turkish Defense Minister. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said Moscow is ready to negotiate with Ukraine and Turkey on the issue of grain exports, adding Russia and Turkey are ready to provide the safety of the ships and bring them to the straits, and then they'll go on their own to the Mediterranean Sea. And a volley of Russian cruise missiles hit a shopping center, a dance studio, and a wedding hall in central Ukraine today, killing at least 23 people and setting off a frantic search for dozens more lost in the rubble in a latest strike to hit a civilian area far from the front lines. And in more related news, witnesses for the defense praised Brittany Griner's athletic prowess and character today in a courtroom outside Moscow where the American basketball star, now one of the world's most famous prisoners, is facing a possible 10-year sentence on drug charges. Maxim Rybakov, the director of the professional team Griner had played for, that's called UMMC Ekaterinburg, testified to her outstanding abilities as a player and personal contribution to strengthening the team's spirit. Griner's trial resumed a week after she pleaded guilty to drug charges. The Russian authorities accused her of having a vape cartridge with hashish oil in her luggage at an airport near Moscow on February 17th. In the Russian justice system, trials go on even when defendants plead guilty, but Griner's lawyers have said they hoped her plea would make the court more lenient. The trial is expected to continue on Friday. And President Biden is in Israel on the first leg of a Mideast trip with the stated goal of getting Saudi Arabia to produce more oil. Although observers have little hope in the success of Biden's mission, inflation has uh, risen more than 9 percent, the highest in 41 years. Today, another blow as the underlying prices that drive the economy had an even bigger rise of over 11 percent in the latest sign of persistent inflationary pressure that may cause the Federal Reserve to raise rates aggressively at its next meeting at the end of the month. Economist Jack Rasmus says inflation is being caused by suppliers, especially oil companies, who are keeping prices of profits as high as possible. 
oil, global prices that are traded on global markets that is being driven up uh, by global speculators, driving up the price of oil. The U.S. Biden can't get the oil companies uh, to pump more oil. They're cleverly keeping the supply pretty much intact, both at the, the wellhead and at the refineries, because that means more profits for them, of course. So Biden's running around the world uh, trying to get the Saudis and everybody else to put more oil, and he's not having much luck there either. We had the producer prices that came out today, second month in a row, over 11%, and those will uh, drift into uh, consumer prices. Over half of the inflation is energy, uh, not just gasoline, but utilities and food-related and other industries. Uh, That's uh, a global problem. That's also exacerbated uh, by the sanctions, which drive up the market price, global market price for oil. There's been a little bit of of a pullback on the the gasoline price, uh, but 50 cents a gallon on $7 here in California isn't going to dent anything. I don't see a big softening. You know, there'll be a little bit of bouncing up and down. You know, is this really reality sinking in that gasoline is a luxury product? Well, it's going to stay uh, higher than normal, normal being what it was in the past, whether it's going to uh, continue to stay at $100 a barrel crude prices. Uh, some some are saying it's going to go uh, much higher if uh, this uh, screwball idea of uh, somehow Biden and the Europeans and NATO can uh, uh, force uh, you know a, a lower price in oil and uh, overcome, uh, you know, these forces of supply globally. I don't think it will. Uh, I think that's, that's just another uh, crazy idea as they are desperately looking for anything they can do and say and make it look like they're doing something. But the only way it's going to come down uh, significantly, and it won't come down to uh, where it was, that's for sure, in the immediate term, is uh, recession. And that's the solution, and they know that's the solution, and they're planning that. The Fed's going to carry that out with accelerating uh, rate hikes until uh, it causes uh, unemployment and uh, uh, income uh, declines. And uh, only then will you see this problem really come down. But global supply chains are still going to be a problem for quite some time. It's not going away. The Republicans saying that uh, just we're not drilling enough. You're not giving out enough permits to drill. We don't. We should be up there on the North Slope drilling away. Oh, that's nonsense because the oil companies don't want to drill. <laughs> you know, they're adding maybe a one or two drilling rigs, you know, a week. They've got plenty of oil in the ground. They don't need to open more North Coast, Alaska, or out in the Gulf or whatever. They don't need to do that. they got a lot of oil. They just keep it in the ground because that means the supply is going to be kept tight, and that keeps the price up. That's just politics on the part of the Republicans. They know it. Economist Jack Rasmus speaking earlier today. He's a regular contributor to the WBAI News. Joe Biden has defended his imminent trip to Saudi Arabia, saying he'll not avoid human rights issues on the final leg of his Middle East tour, despite refusing to commit to mentioning the murder of the dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi when he meets the kingdom's crown prince. Speaking during a news conference with the interim Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid in Jerusalem today, the U.S. leader said his stance on Khashoggi's killing was absolutely clear. My views on Khashoggi have been absolutely positively clear. I have never been quiet about talking about human rights. The reason I'm going to Saudi Arabia, though, is much broader, is to promote U.S. interest. 
promote U.S. interest in a way that I think we have an opportunity to reassert what I think we've made a mistake of walking away from, our influence in the Middle East. I'm going to meet with nine other heads of state. It's not just as happens to be in Saudi Arabia. And so there are so many issues at stake. I want to make clear that we can continue to lead in the region and not create a vacuum, a vacuum that is filled by China and or Russia against the interest of both Israel and the United States and many other countries. The purpose of the visit is to coordinate with nine heads of state what are in U.S. interest and I believe in Israel's interest as well. I will bring up, I always bring up human rights. I always bring up human rights. But my position on Khashoggi has been so clear. If anyone doesn't understand it in Saudi Arabia or anywhere else, then they haven't been around for a while. President Biden. David Yagubian is professor of history at California State University of San Bernardino. He's author of Ethnicity, Identity, and the Development of Nationalism in Iran. He had this to say about the president's trip. It's really about two things, one being cheaper gas prices if President Biden can somehow motivate the Saudis to produce more oil, which is doubtful. It's also about normalizing relations between Israel and Gulf Arab states and pressuring Gulf Arab countries into a military and intelligence alliance with Israel against Iran. It basically revolves around those two elements. Um, I don't believe that President Biden is going to be successful um, in either of them, although the Arab-Israeli normalization process, if you will, does seem to be continuing irrespective of President Biden's approach or pressure on either the Saudis or other Gulf Arab nations. Now, he was appearing with the uh, Prime Minister of Israel today, and uh, they talked about Iran. You know, the Prime Minister of Israel is saying your plan to attack Iran if they get an atom bomb or about to get an atom bomb isn't good enough. Attack them today. This is typical Israeli and American hypocrisy, whereas President Biden, as candidate, spoke very harshly about Saudi Arabia, referring to it as a pariah nation, and as well, to a certain extent, snubbed Prime Minister Netanyahu by refusing to call him in February of 2020 after he was elected. Nevertheless, there is really no element of Biden's itinerary or agenda which focuses on human rights. Therefore, things like the execution of Shireen Abu Akleh, who was a U.S. citizen and journalist, in terms of the Palestinian issue and supporting them, opening the U.S. consulate office in Jerusalem for the Palestinians, opening the PLO office in D.C., removing the PLO from the terrorist list. Um, none of these things are on the agenda. Furthermore, in Saudi Arabia, Jamal Khashoggi's brutal murder is not on the agenda. President Biden will not be speaking about the 81 Saudis who were recently executed for the crime of being Shiite, nor will he pursuing cooperation uh, amongst the, the Gulf Arab nations regarding a return potentially to the JCPOA. This trip does not promote peace in the region. It does not promote stability in the region. It simply exacerbates existing tensions and will only benefit the U.S. military industrial complex. Would an invasion of Iran, if they decide to go to war with Iran, would that play out similarly to what's happening in Ukraine? 
the U.S. is not in a position to engage in an invasion of Iran similar to that of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So what's all this talk constantly, like the war talk, when nobody has any intention of launching a war that couldn't be won? For the last now over four decades, the United States has refused to recognize the legitimacy of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Therefore, it has consistently been engaging in activities and actions such as supporting Saddam Hussein for eight long years during the Iran-Iraq war to destabilize Iran and to achieve regime change. This is pipe dream, but nevertheless, it is incumbent on members of the American political establishment to support Israel irrespective of its apartheid policies and to castigate and threaten Iran. This is just a consistent feature of U.S. foreign policy. Iran is, doesn't develop a nuclear weapon only out of their generosity towards us. They could very quickly, I'm sure. The U.S. claims we'll get them if they do it. What are they going to do? Nothing. Definitely. And not only is there a fatwa that, that is a religious edict that forbids the development of nuclear weapons as haram. This is something that most of the American mainstream media never mentions. I mean, this has been repeated several times, so it wasn't just a one-off, but also the Iranian government has determined that nuclear weapons would simply be a liability, and this is why the Iran focuses so much on its non-nuclear ballistic missile defense. It doesn't have an Air Force, a flying museum of old American aircraft, and so it has found an effective form of defense in its non-nuclear ballistic missile missiles. Therefore, the Islamic Republic of Iran do not need nuclear weapons. If the U.S. was going to try to pull off some sort of Desert Storm-style attack on Iran, it would need to build up its forces in the region, and this is something that Iranian ballistic missile development prohibits. The United States would not have the capacity to, to build up you know, hundreds of thousands of troops on the border with armor to invade, such as in Desert Storm. David Agubian is professor of history at California State University, San Bernardino. Biden also discussed Iran with the Israeli prime minister who demanded the United States make war on the Jewish state's number one enemy. We've laid out for the leadership of Iran what we're willing to accept in order to get back in the JCPOA. We're waiting for the response. When that will come, I'm not certain, but we are not going to wait forever. We mean what we say. They have an opportunity to accept this agreement that's been laid down. If they don't, we made it absolutely clear. We will not, let me say it again, we will not allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon. I continue to believe that diplomacy is the best way to achieve this outcome. Words will not stop them, Mr. President. Diplomacy will not stop them. The only thing that will stop Iran is knowing that if they continue to develop their nuclear program, the free world will use force. The only way to stop them is to put a credible military threat on the table. An independent journalist, David Sheen, says the problem with Israel is its government that is, is that its government is under the control of right-wing nationalists and its military operates with impunity. It's rare for an Israeli soldier to be punished for war crimes or even accused by name, such as in the case of the killing of journalist Shireen Abu Akla. Sheen joins WBAI from Israel. Well, I wouldn't say that it's dangerous at all if what you're reporting on dovetails with the narrative of the government. 
course, there's plenty of journalists working for state, gov- you know, state television, state radio, and other stations that are nationalistically oriented. But if your reporting is challenges the government narrative and doesn't parrot the nationalist talking points, then most definitely you come under threat. Of course, all journalists are under threat if you're truth-telling, but if you don't have Jewish privilege, if you don't have Israeli citizenship, if you're a Palestinian, and even if you're Palestinian-American or a foreign correspondent, you definitely run the risk of injury, of worse, and that could run from being targeted by Israeli security forces, but it also could occur from Israeli citizens and just have the security forces stand on the side and not interact and not, you know, protect you as they should. So it is a risk. You know, I've certainly been injured in the field, but, you know, as a Jewish-Israeli citizen, I have some measure of protection. For those who aren't, it's much more dangerous, without a doubt. What's the message that they're trying to send going after journalists? It's impossible to know 100% because, of course, anytime there's an event within the army, then the army officials just kind of, everyone rallies around the flag and protects the soldier from any, you know, any accountability. And so we'll probably never even know the name of the soldier that shot Shirin Abu Akhla. Um, And uh, that was feared you know, featured most prominently a couple of years ago when we saw uh, an Israeli soldier who shot a Palestinian man on television. It was all documented. Everyone saw that the man was incapacitated on the ground, didn't, you know, represent any level of harm to anyone. The soldier just came up and shot him. And that soldier was put on trial, but there was such an outcry amongst you know, the Israeli Jewish population, and even amongst the political echelon in Israel. So, so many people were clamoring for his release, that eventually he he was, in fact, convicted, got a very small sentence, and even that sentence was reduced to just, like, a few months in jail. And, you know, since then, he's, you know, something of a, of a, a a populist figure, you know, like, these soldiers who do this aren't going to face retribution and then once they get into the civilian life they'll be heralded as folk heroes is biden going to change that his visit please i'm sure that you could spend hours criticizing biden from all angles but certainly from this angle you know he's done nothing but to be fair he's only following in the footsteps of those that came before him and frankly there's almost near total support in the American political spectrum for continued Israeli impunity. Sure, there are a few members of the squad, other progressive lawmakers, who occasionally will speak out and demand some semblance of justice, but those voices are so few and so far between, and if any one of them reaches any level of political notoriety, the second or first largest lobby in the United States works to crush their chances of ever getting reelected. They're so busy calling okay. each other names and to obfuscate mm-hmm. the truth of what's really going on. It's really painful to see that happen. Anytime the because racism is such a scourge in the world today and is needs to be fought from all quarters, it's so sad to see the meaning of racism diluted and the meaning of anti racism diluted and perverted 
to the point where it's being used and abused in order to protect, not to protect Jewish people from coming to harm, but to protect Jewish power from being challenged. Not to protect Jewish people living in Israel, but to defend Jewish supremacy in Israel, to defend a regime in which Jewish people have more rights than non-Jews. That's not democracy, that's called ethnocracy. David Sheen is a journalist reporting from Israel. Pot testing for NYPD police officers may soon go up in smoke. The city yesterday initially ordered the country's largest police department to stop testing cops for marijuana use, but the NYPD later backpedaled on the idea. After initially releasing a statement saying they would halt the test, the NYPD said it was mulling over the order. A memo from the NYPD's Deputy Commissioner of Legal Matters dated July 11 states that starting immediately, the department should only drug test a member of the service for marijuana if there's reasonable suspicion that the member is impaired by marijuana on the job. The NYPD later issued a letter to all commands that said cops are not permitted to use cannabis on or off duty. Previously, a police officer would be automatically fired if they tested positive for marijuana, a process referred to being doled out in police speak. However, since then, marijuana has been legalized and it specifically says that it can't be used against police officers, firefighters and others. The mayor addressed the issue today. There was a, a, there was a conflict between uh, two agencies, but all of those agencies that you mentioned, they fall under one mayor and the mayor resolved the conflicts between agencies. Lawmakers make the laws. I make the policy. And so our team are all together. We're going to resolve this as a team. I will hear if there are conflicts. I'm not hearing that. I'm hearing just the opposite. The state passed a law. I don't agree with not carving out police, firefighters, uh, people who are doctors, those areas where you have to be clear. But they passed the law. The law states that we can still test if someone is... Uh, there's reasonable cause to believe that they're using marijuana. Uh, you can't test during someone's private time, but you can't get high on the job. That has not changed. That has not changed. I'm sorry, the NYPD is objecting to random, the, the dissolution of random screenings. Should those continue? Uh, I didn't hear the police commissioner state that. And once I speak with her, I'll find out what the issues are. And we'll sit down together and resolve it. We're going to move as one unified city. But we will follow the law, like I said over and over again. And that's the mayor speaking earlier today about the problems faced by the establishment now that marijuana is legal. And that's some of the news for Thursday, July 14, 2022. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Light up, boys in blue. We'd like to see you all smiling on the beat. <laughs>